Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Coming Up Next. It's Alistair here, welcoming you to another ramble on the podcast where I speak with the world's top creatives about creating a life of their own design. We're on to part two of my interview with Killing Heidi, and if you haven't heard part one, you should go to comingupnext.com.au where you can find my interview with Jesse Hooper amongst the entire back catalogue of Coming Up Next rambles, which are all available to download for free. Now, look, this is an unconditional, no-strings-attached arrangement. But if you feel like you want to do something in return, something for me, something for Alistair, while you're on said website, you'll find links to subscribe, to rate, and to review this podcast. I mean, I know that's what I'd do. Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. Bosspods.com. Podcast like a boss. I was talking to, to Jesse at the beginning um, about what it was like that moment where you did decide or where you have decided to kind of take your finger off the pause button of killing Heidi. I think there was a rush of emotions, like... Definitely a lot of fear. I won't lie. I get apprehensive. I get fearful. I have a few little voices in my head that say, oh, but people will think this or people will think that or or, are you really going to enjoy that? But there was also for the first time, hence why it got through this time, because we've kind of thought about it many times and we've we've had a lot of offers to bring Killing Heidi back, but we've we've said no and resisted and usually that's come from me usually the resistance has been me going no I'm not not, I don't think so now's not the right time or I'm not feeling it but this time in the rush of emotions there was also like some oh I think I might really enjoy that like anticipation excitement pleasure in thinking you know what 20 years is a huge achievement even though we haven't been together for like 10 years 20 years doing anything and still being in the industry and still being a singer and still being active suddenly felt like something worth celebrating and allowed me to sort of feel the excitement and feel the positive emotions as well. What were, what were some of the voices? I'm, intru- I'm curious to know what were they saying to you uh, in, in regards to you know, not doing it? Look, it's, it's hard to define them really because you don't hear them clearly as voices. They're more just... And a little synapses firing perhaps around, you know, it's better to move forward, don't look back. Um, Those are the kind of judgments, self-judgments. Yeah, self-judgments, exactly. Oh, and um, oh, sometimes you diminish yourself in your own mind. I think a lot of people do and be like, oh, well, who will really even care? The voice of doubt, the naysayer, the critic was like, oh, you know, my, you know, what if no one comes to the show? Then you'll look a bit silly. And here I am, you know, six <laughs> months later and the show's going so well. I'm so overwhelmed by the opposite of what that little inner critic says. Often the truth, the opposite is the truth. Shit loads of people care. Heaps of people are having fun with it. It's bringing joy to many and I'm having a great time doing it. So you really have to remember, it's a good lesson for me. This whole thing's been a great lesson for me to hear that in a critic and go, okay, I hear you. Thanks for that one opinion. But there's a whole lot of other sides to this coin. And so far now I'm really enjoying the sort of, you know, benefit of all those other sides to the coin, which I did finally go, hmm. When, I, when we said, yes, let's do this, we also had a caveat on it that we could just have a go and not have to be committed to doing anything more than really one show. We were just going to dip our toe in the water. So that was kind of for me as well as a safety rope to go, if you don't like it, you can pull out, you can get out and you don't have to do anything more than this one show. And then of course that one show went incredibly well. And I was like, all right, I'm in.
of just 13, Ella Hooper fronted iconic Aussie rock band Killing Heidi. At the time of its release, their debut record Reflector was the fastest selling album of all time. Since the band hit pause in 2006, Ella has gone on to have a hugely successful career in TV and radio land, with shows like Spicks and Specks and Rockwiz. Today, 20 years after Killing Heidi began, she steps into the chat cave to talk about the band reuniting for a national tour. Killing Heidi are coming to a venue near you. You can see them in WA on June the 2nd at the Store Theatre uh, with shows on the 3rd of June at the Gov in South Australia, the Metro Theatre in Sydney on the 8th. A sold-out show in Melbourne on the 9th at 170 Russell, so if you're very resourceful, you might be able to get to that one. And rounding it out on the 10th of June in Brisbane at the Tivoli. You can get more info and tickets at ticketmaster.com. The songs featured in this episode, the song you just heard, is uh, one of Ella's solo tunes, Shard, off her New Magic album. And coming up later in the episode, you'll hear two of Killing Heidi's smash hits, Weir. And to round out this episode, episode 95 of Coming Up Next, Live Without It. Live Without It 
was it like to play all your old tunes again? It was fun. It was just fun. And it was freakishly like riding a bike. It was creepy how quickly it all came back at rehearsal. You know, definitely sort of had to work at it and work at singing, hitting the notes and work at the sort of physicality of the intense teenage music that was very um, high energy and embodying that again. But then once we got on stage at Queenscliff Festival where we did our first kind of big rock set back, the energy of the crowd lifted me up like higher than I'd been in years and years and years because I sort of haven't really played to crowds like that with my own music I've done a bit of fun big shows with like rock quiz touring and and you know pretty decent sized auditoriums singing other people's songs and guesting here and there but these were my songs this was my crowd they were fully into it and that sort of buoyancy of that level of you know fan energy I forgot how much that does for a show and how much that does for the performer as well like you don't even need to work as hard when the crowd already knows the songs, already loves the songs, and is excited to sort of see them again. What's that like? Uh, I've always, this is, you know, one of my things that I've wondered in life, what that energy exchange is like between musician and audience. So beautiful. Like, it's the thing that everybody gets addicted to, I think, and the thing that can be hard for musicians or creators when they're, not in the spotlight or when they go back to their, you know, there's the classic tale of like everyone adoring you on stage and you have this huge energy exchange and then you go back to your lonely hotel room. You're like, oh, who am I? What am I? You know, it's the contrast that can be hard for people because it's huge. You take in gigawatts of energy when you're on stage and you're very raw, hopefully, when you're on stage. You're actually open-hearted, you're open-minded and you're you're receiving a lot of hectic energy and mainly positive mainly love people singing the lyrics that you've written back at you it's a wonderful thing it's like a really amazing addictive exciting thing how do you personally now i suppose with 20 years of experience how do you reconcile that moment where you are back lonely in your hotel room well that's i'm lucky like that because i'm pretty i'm pretty um lucky with my my old serotonin stores are pretty good (laughs) and i just like i never sort of Funnily enough, I don't think I did get personally addicted to that. I was thinking more of your, you know, your classic rock star kind of yeah, right. tale of whatever, go and drink too much and drug abuse or whatever. I've kind of, I don't know, I've been really lucky. Like I've really, really loved performing. I love the energetic exchange, but I know I'm still who I am without it. Like I don't actually rely on it for my sense of identity. Mm. So it's something I step into and then step out of. And it's, it's awesome because I kind of, you don't want to be the heightened you 24-7 and you don't want adoration 24-7. It'd be really unhealthy yeah. and really one-dimensional. So I love stepping into the role of performer and then stepping out again and just becoming Ella. And that's who goes back to the Lonely Hotel Room. Ella, who's happy to sit on the email and be like, la-di-da-di-da, watch some cats on the internet and I'm fine. Yeah. What, which, which cats do you watch, like to watch in particular? I, well, my friends send them to. I don't even know what they are. It's right. like they, my friends and I have a little private Instagram chat where they just send me funny animal things. And I'm so hopeless. I never send anything back. I'm like, lol, wait for some more. One mm. of my uh, friends showed me one recently, which was a chipmunk jumping in slow motion from the back of the couch with <laughs> I Believe I Can Fly playing. <laughs> and then he hits a wall. That's so good. See? <laughs> you can't be lonely and sad in a hotel room when you have that. No. No. So I'm curious if you remember that first moment where you did sing or you performed. Um, I mean, you know, you started Killing Heidi when you were third. Well, Killing Heidi became known when you were 13. So I can't imagine it would have been much earlier than that. But do you remember that first moment? Mm, it's tricky for me because I think I came out singing that's the reason my mom says you literally came out of the the womb just la 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 like making (laughs) noise and songs and I it's tricky I think there was always music around I was always singing along and I received positive um feedback for it pretty young I think so it could be as young as five or six you know singing along to stuff and mum or dad going that's great you know keep going not shut up (laughs) but I do now that I'm thinking about it talking whilst thinking buying myself some time I think it's probably the moment I remember getting a sense of identity from it which was my real turn on I was like 
I can actually affect people with this stuff was when we probably wrote my first little song. It was terrible, really, like so basic, really kiddy song at like 10 or 11 and showed my mum. And it was literally like, war is bad, peace is good, why can't everyone just be friends? La-di-da. <laughs> and she was like, fantastic. She was actually, you know, really, really warm about it and gave me this big, you know, positive response. And I do remember where I was and I was sitting in the backyard and I know that I'd put it together and it did actually have a structure. Like it did have verse, chorus, verse, middle section, first chorus, end. And so she was probably just being a proud parent, but the way that she reacted to like, hey, that song is really good. It's actually really good. You know, it's got a good structure. It's I like where it goes. I like the chorus. That's what I remember kind of going, I want to do another one. I want to make a better one. Mm. And maybe I should even go and get Jessie, who actually knows how to play guitar really <laughs> well and do something with it. So your parents were very supportive of your endeavor. They were. That was huge, I think, you know, because we grew up so isolated. There wasn't really anyone else to hassle to listen to us. So, you know, obviously support from Jesse um, wanting to sort of play with me. And one of the only ways I could get him to give me attention was to sing with him and sort of get in on his hobby, which was music and guitar. And then, of course, you know, the positive support, the support we got from our parents was really, really huge. And then when we got to like late primary school, early high school age, all of our friends were being supportive and positive. You know, we just had... I remember other incidents like my cool city cousin. We had cousins that lived in the city that we like really looked up to and admired because they knew about so much cool stuff and they were always like two years ahead of, on the music trends. And they were like legitimately really cool people. They are still really cool people, really pl- plugged in and switched on. And when we would come to town, they'd be like, oh, oh, this is our cousins, uh, Jesse and Ellen. Yeah, yeah, they're like, they're really good at music. Uh, they can play you a song. And we'd be like, oh, can we? So like they'd get us to play for their friends. And I was like, shh. That is really the biggest compliment. If our cool city cousins are getting us to perform for their friends, who to me were just so intimidatingly, wonderfully cool. I was like, I think this is, I think we actually might be good at this because they wouldn't be, they'd be hiding us if we weren't actually good at what we were doing because they wouldn't want to, you know, ruin their street cred. Mm. (laughs) I spoke to Jesse about, you know, how you guys were writing music when you first started because, you know, it's all well and good at this age to go, you know, you must write from your truth, from your experience, you know, like, and, you know, you're writing from your breakups, you're writing from your life experiences. But when you're 13 or younger, 11, I guess you're just writing off instinct. Is that a fair thing to say? Definitely, definitely. Instinct and homage, you know, really, you're a sponge. You're such a sponge when you've only been alive for 12, 13 years. Like, now that I'm so much older, that kind of boggles my mind that, that a 13-year-old can have anything to write about. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't say that because I was that kid. Um, and you wrote about war and peace. Yeah, I wrote about the big Just, issues yeah. because, you know, I hadn't been in love and I hadn't had a boyfriend and I hadn't experienced those more nuanced emotions and experiences. So I guess I started out pretty general. Mm. And I think that helped Killing Heidi. I think that when I did write angsty songs about this or that, they were mostly sort of imagined or absorbed from other people's traumas or other people's angsts. And, you know, it was just in at the time. It was the late 90s. So, you know, Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana, Pearl Jam was angsty stuff going around. So I was like, oh, yeah, angst, that must be the emotion of the day. I think I know what that is. (laughs) Yeah, right. Like, I'm not fooling anybody. But I did did have some angst to access around different stuff around isolation because that was real for me wanting to being such a social person, which I am, and a talker and a, you know, interactor, like I'm just a rabid interactor, but I grew up really isolated. So that was something I could sort of speak from my truth and sing about was growing up in a rural situation, going to a country high school when you're not particularly sporty or um, traditionally pretty, all that stuff, you know. I found things to sing about that were true to the 13-year-old, 15-year-old me, and they didn't include boys and relationships and stuff like that and I'm I'm really glad that that was the way it went down that I didn't force myself to because in in many ways I did just um, rip off other artists that I loved and pay homage but I steered away from the love stuff and the sex stuff and the ooh baby baby stuff because I was just like you know what as much as I love that music I can't deliver that yet Mm. and I made up for it later (laughs) (laughs) I mean you kind of you know 
something that kept that kept coming to my mind then was um, Jackson Five, for example. And you look at like yeah. what Michael Jackson was singing yeah. about as a <laughs> exactly. as a, like a five year old. Like he's already had twenty breakups. Like oh girl, you come back now. And I'm like like he's like some yeah. bit of twisted old dude, you know? Yeah, I want you back. Yeah, I want you back. It's like you've had someone to come back. Like, yeah, yeah that always struck me too. <laughs> but it's just gorgeous music, you know. It's like you just feel the vibe, and mm. yeah. But I've always seen myself more as a writer than a singer. Even way back then, I was like, I'm not the most amazing singer. I'm not gonna ever have the most agile voice or biggest range. So I better like mean what I'm singing. And so even then, were you making that as like a kind of conscious decision, or was mm. it just like a, a feeling that you had? That's a good question. I think it was semi-conscious. I've always looked up to writers. I've always been a reader. And lots of the musicians I love are singer-songwriters. I love a good singer. Don't get me wrong. I love Aretha. I love all the beautiful, great singers. But I'm more go wild for people who are singing the song they've written. That just does something to me. And, And they may be very average singers, like your Neil Youngs or whoever. But yeah, that just flicks my switch more. So what was the moment like? Uh, Jesse told me that dad picked you guys up from school and he said you were going to get a phone call later in the day. Yeah, I didn't know what that was about. I was like, oh, are we in trouble? <laughs> but, well, you weren't in trouble. Well, if you were, it was the best kind of trouble. This was the moment where, you know, you found out that, um, that Kettle was going to be played. Or was, it, was this when you found out it was going to be played or when you found out it was that you'd actually won... Triple J on Earth. Yeah, it was the winning. It was um, by that stage we'd probably forgotten that we had entered it because, as you know, young minds, you know, a month is a really long time. Like yeah. a month is like a year and a, a week is like a month. And I was like, what? So, yeah, I can't remember how they – they probably semi-ruined the surprise by saying, you're going to get a phone call. And they were hanging around with the phone. I think at one stage I sort of noticed that maybe the camera was on the bench. And I was like, we don't have – any family photos like we're not a camera family we never take happy snaps I didn't even know we had a freaking camera I was like what's it doing on the bench and dad was ready to sort of snap us receiving the call so something was definitely up but I don't think we still didn't assume that's what was going on because you just don't assume when that's the the biggest thing since sliced bread and you're like no way what was your what was your reaction I squealed and I screamed and I was like holy cow I think I was just really thrilled and excited and a bit of disbelief too like Jesse was I think I remember him being anyway a lot more like yeah yeah confident like you you bet we won and I was like what a little bit more shocked and then just so flattered you know it was very very exciting to think this thing that is in our heads that we think we might be good at and that our cousins and our mum and dad tell us we're good at who you know can't always be trusted as we know with all of these Australian Idol this and that like <laughs> some people get up on that stage and are like who has been telling you who has been telling you that you've got a great voice so this was like actual confirmation like from people we've never met before absolute industry peers who yeah it was just wild Mm. really quickly expanded our sense of what was possible. So, you know, the the next step in the process was to write and create Reflector. Did you know when, you know, when you kind of, when you began that process that it was going to be what ended up being, you know, a three-year kind of process? And had no idea. I had no idea what to expect. So I guess one benefit of that was that it became normal. But right now, you know, a three-year album recording would drive me crazy. I'd be like, no, I'm over it. There's something wrong here. Obviously, this isn't working because three years is a long time to maintain enthusiasm. Three years is a long time to stay on topic. And I did so much changing and growing in that from, you know, from 13 to 16 is a massive change. That's when all that stuff does come in. You do have your first boyfriend. You do start having sex. You do start having heartbreak. That's from 13 to 16. Well, for me, it was. So I'm trying to be the same girl from who wrote these songs then is delivering them three years later. It was, yeah, it's a bit of a challenge. Did you, feel, uh, did you feel like you needed to be that person still? Was there that kind of um, uh, the, that, that pressure on yourself? I, well, I think it's caught on Reflector. I think you just hear the change. It's a really interesting snapshot of, of a young 
person, like a young woman, woman girl, that's right on that weird borderline and that's captured in there somehow. Not conscious, just by virtue of the recording being over that particular period of time. So it's all sort of in there. You can hear hints of woman emerging and you can totally hear child as well. How did you move through the the frustration of, you know, wanting probably so badly to be at the end point of that phase so that you could start, you know, putting it out into the world? I don't know. I think, you know, I think there were a few tears and whatever, like just hissy fits and tantrums as teenagers do and like this is never going to happen and as we said just said before like three years feels like 10 years when you're a kid because time just is so much more time goes so much slower and you probably because you're doing all that developing I don't know how we kind of handled it we our you know definitely people back home at high school after winning unearthed in in 96 at 13 were questioning at 15 16 like is there anything really happening with your music career? You always say you're going to Melbourne and you're recording this mystical album, but we don't hear anything. There's no single out on the radio and we'd get really like, uh, uh, sort of <laughs> like panicky and frustrated. We're like, they're right. You know, nothing's happened. Is this ever going to, maybe we've been led up the garden path and we'd never worked with who we were working with before. We'd become very, very close with them, but they had no track record to us. So at some certain stage, we're like, shit, maybe this is all a lie. Maybe they're just like taking our money and doing nothing with it. And yeah. But then, of course, we were there. We were working in the studio. We'd record as much as we can and be as involved as we can. But one of the sort of slight maybe regrets with Reflector in our whole early recording career is we couldn't be more involved because we were so young. So not all of it was to our taste or, uh, uh, you know, under our control. So it was an, yeah, it was an interesting time, just so much education happening from never having recorded a song before, recording one song, that was Kettle, to recording heaps and it being the next three years of your life. And when that moment did come, what was that like? What was the, you know, what was the relief? Was, was it relief? Was it, you know, um, uncontrolled joy I mean it's probably everything really yeah that's it I haven't thought about that for ages I can't even to be honest quite remember like what I remember what the waiting was like and what the sort of anticipation was like I don't quite remember what the release was like I guess we just got straight into playing and my focus probably switched from the recording to now how do I perform live and how the hell do I perform live to big crowds when I've never done that before so I think my focus probably would have just switched from record release anticipation to Ella the performer you know how do I be this performer and quickly learn how to entertain people at the big day out how did you do that I don't know that I did. I don't know that I did. I've just always just been swimming. Just swim, 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 swim. Hopefully it's convincing. Mm. Only recently do I feel like I know what I'm doing on stage and I can call it up and I can turn it on and turn it off. For many, 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 many years, it was just like jump in and try not to break something. I read uh, in an interview that you said it feels like a different life, you know, what you did then. And and I interviewed um, Stephanie Rice, the um, Olympic gold medal swimmer, and she's now, you know, uh, what, almost 10 years on from her biggest success as a swimmer. And she sort of described in a similar way. She said, you know, it's, it just feels like I, I look at the experience and it doesn't feel like it was me. It feels like this other life. What, you know, do you kind of take that idea and use it as like a, a tool for expansion, for, edu- for, you know, educating yourself for now how does that kind of play out? Yeah, I think memories and and habits and formative things, they pop up whether you want them to or not. So a lot of experience that I accrued back then when things were happening hard and fast and I and I wasn't fully ready, you know, I would have loved to have more training as a singer. I would have loved to have more experience under my belt as a performer for the early days, but I didn't and it went okay, you know, but So I probably formed a few kooky habits and a few funny reactions to things and they still pop up through certain trigger points. You know, I understand what Stephanie's saying about it's a different life and it feels like it almost didn't happen to me. I can relate to that, but I can also sort of look back and I started to kind of see that younger person doing all those gigs 
not as a separate me, but like as an alternative me, like as a, as a sort of friend that I can go back and talk to and that I now want to protect when I'm put in those situations or certain things come up and I realize I've got a, a trigger point or a reaction from it that was set back then. I'm now aware of it and I can go, oh, well, I think I'm having this, possibly having this knee jerk reaction because back then when things were so fast and furious, I had to make quick decisions on things or, you know, compromise on certain things that I'm now not willing to compromise on or have a voice when I did not have a voice or just do things differently or spend longer thinking about something before making a decision. Some of the things I didn't get to do back then. And now when I do them, I feel like I'm literally talking to the younger me and going, hey, got you back. No worries. Look, I've learned this lesson and look what I can do now, buddy. It's a really weird but nice kind of sensation. Yeah, that's cool. Hmm. So Reflector was at the time the fastest selling album of all time. And, you know, with Mascara and Weir, what was that whole whirlwind like for you as as a young person? Uh, You know, all of the experiences that you kind of subsequently had, what was that like? Again, I can't remember it super clearly. I can just remember more of the emotions around it and whatnot overwhelm like it was definitely a little bit overwhelming and I had some times where I just had to sort of pinch myself and hold my friends hands and you know I've got a really strong supportive group of girlfriends and I really called on them hard in that time I pretty much made them all move in with me in Melbourne to help keep me grounded and lucky for me they were just finishing high school and you know being from a small country town they were pretty much ready to move to Melbourne some moved earlier, some moved later, but by the end of like 2000, I was in a share house with five of my best friends who have known me since I was three because I, I really needed them. I was like, this is getting really big, guys. And they're like, yeah, we know, we can see that. This is kind of crazy. And whether it was really, con- it wasn't conscious at the time, but now that I've thought about it, I was like, quick, come here. I need you. It would be great if you could share this with me. And I took them to things with me. I kept them around. You know, I had a boyfriend at the time. He was really a constant and a support and would come and pick me up in the car from things and just normalize the rush of what was happening when we're in Mascara really started to take off and the way that my life changed and I became a full-time rock and roll singer. I was like, I need my friends and I need some normalcy and my history. I also needed people who knew me way before this did you i was gonna say did people start treating you differently it's probably a redundant question but how did you respond when people started to treat you differently oh gee i don't know hopefully politely but slightly detached i mean i i still wonder like i feel like i sort of get the best of people and i wonder if that's because of who i am or or what i've you know what i might be to people I'm often the person that goes, oh, no, so-and-so's okay. And friends go like, uh, yeah, to you they are. <laughs> like, so I don't know. I often ask the question, do I get a slightly warped version of people because they put their best foot forward with me? I don't know. Some people don't. Like some people clearly, you know, don't want to impress me or don't like me and that's fine. But usually I think I'm slightly, I used to be more slightly aware of people treating me differently just because of the the sort of, I guess the out and out aspects of it are people being extra nice or people giving you free stuff or going, don't worry about that coffee. It's on the house. And (laughs) it's weird, you know, it was weird for a kid, but nice. It's also really, I guess it's a bit of a high. And at certain times I think I wanted to make sure I wasn't getting too high on that because that's what can happen. You know, you can start to become well-known and famous for what you do. And there is again that adoration and the dark side of it too people going you suck we hate you we hate your band all of that negative attention as well you can get a little high on it and you can lose touch with who you want to be and who you want to be day to day and how you want to treat people and then what you expect from people the next time somebody doesn't pay for your coffee or whatever you don't want to be like oh what's going on here you really want to make sure you're not kind of getting high on that different treatment did you buy into that that lifestyle kind of shift or the kind of, uh, I suppose, stereotypical idea of what a rock and roll lifestyle is or did you kind of stay away from it? I, lo- 
I think we bought in a little. I think, you know, you're sort of crazy if you don't too. Like it does certainly take some of the invitations and you take some of the free shit and you're like, this is amazing. <laughs> you know, two pretty simple kids from the country that never had anything fancy. Like we didn't come from means and, you know, we didn't, we had a really comfortable, lovely life, but that's because we appreciate the small things. We were never going to have anything fancy. And then, so it was kind of exciting and nice to have access to some nice things, nice guitars from Mayton and some jeans from Levi's and come to the opening of this movie. We definitely got into that a little bit, but I think I'm proud to say when it started to become, like when you've done more of that than the other, that feels imbalanced. I think both Jess and I have been pretty good at feeling where the imbalance tips where you're becoming a bit too me, 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 me. It's all about me who's giving me something. And you're not going, hey, how are you? How's my buddy? I heard you just broke up with your girlfriend. Like, how are you going? Like, knowing when to flick the switch and stop thinking about yourself. Mm. I think it's important. I mean, you know, one of the through lines of, of this podcast with a lot of the people that I've spoken to is, you know, taking the kind of uh, focus off yourself and making it about the work. And I guess in music more than most other creative fields, there is that um, that propensity towards the self-indulgent musician who, you know, does just kind of make it all about them. And I guess that would be very inviting in a way, particularly when you're looking for an experience that matches that high that you get from being on stage. Yeah, it's a bit of a perfect cocktail, isn't it? It's mm. like, and I've seen it happen to many people and I definitely can relate to feeling the pull of that at different times, you know. Um, yeah, it's it's a weird one. And that's why I think I am so sort of even still focused on staying grounded because the musical lifestyle and the life of a singer-songwriter can just can really just disappear up its own ass like that <laughs> because you are, you, you self-analysis is, is your thing is your kind of thing. And so if you're doing it for a job and you're doing it for a passion and then you're doing it on your off time, no. I think it's really important to keep your off time outward and just to be aware of how sort of um, slippery that slope is. And focus on the work. Like you said, just focus on the work and that's fine to look inwards and spend time thinking about what you're going through if you're turning it into great songs. But even then... Write about something else, you know. Yeah. <laughs> pick pick a theme. Yeah. Do you remember, you know, just to kind of step back for a moment again? Do you remember um, the first really big show that you guys did, and do you remember what it was like in the kind of moments before and leading up to, and then going onto stage for that? Well, there was it was such a quick progression. I think you know. I think I thought it was amazing when we played the Prince of Wales in Melbourne, and I thought it was amazing when we played. Like the Espy, anywhere that had a famous name to me that, you know, my cool 90s rock aunties were going to when I was a little kid. I was like, one day I'll go to the Espy, one day I'll go to the Prince of Wales. And then all of a sudden we're playing there. And these are just sort of medium to large sized pubs. And so that that felt like an exciting moment. And the fact that those shows were often sold out, if not twice or thrice over, I was like, holy cow, not only am I playing here, but we're playing three nights in a row. And then from that, bang, it was like the big day out, which was a really big step because it was main stage. And we were like, just, you know, we'd never talked about things like show craft and we'd never talked about things like, um, track selection of the set which is all stuff that is so important and that I would do now back then I don't know if we if we were just yeah can't remember talking about it can't remember thinking about it so I'm just so glad that it seemed to go well because mm. it was all pretty random and yeah I was I think me side of stage nervous excited pretty pumped up I can hear it in, in my voice when I look back now and if I listen to those big early performances I can hear that I've got nerves but I don't remember hating it and I sort of look pretty confident. So I must have walked a good walk and I've always enjoyed just getting getting out there and singing the songs and getting on stage. Like I've never really had a bad time on stage. So I'm lucky like that. Even though I know I was nervous, it didn't translate into a negative experience. It was just heightened experience. Yeah. You said uh, in an interview, I think people love a sweeping melody and a simple lyric. This was in reference to Weir. 
how significant do you think simplicity is when it comes to not only music but any sort of artistic endeavour? It seems to work. And, of course, jazz aficionados and classical lovers will be like, you know, that's incredibly complicated stuff and it's still beautiful and still classic. But my ear is a pop ear. My brain is a pop culture brain. I love, you know, highfalutin literature as well. Like I totally love that stuff for me in my in my personal sort of reading time. But as an artist, I think I'm very much drawn to the simple hook. But it's got to be a good hook and there's got to be something about it, something that feels familiar but you haven't heard it before. So I think the tricky thing with nailing simplicity is that it can't be boring. Like I'm not saying make it boring. I'm saying make it digestible yet really rich like wow there was something in that simple hook that just does it for me and I'm not sure what it is it's a combination of things you haven't heard before it's hard to talk about like they always say you know talking about music is like dancing about architecture (laughs) it's really tricky because it's this mercurial factor the x factor that why does one oh baby baby sound amazing and another oh baby baby just sound like nothing you know just doesn't work then I'm still fascinated by what makes a good simple hook work. Old friend of mine, we will never lose the time that we shared all these years. Easy.
So as Killing Heidi is kind of progressing, you know, with the release of the second album, you know, it wasn't getting quite as much traction as, as Reflector did. I imagine there would be a kind of uh, desire to kind of almost chase the high again as, you know, sort of going back to that theme. And then, you know, you guys decide to hit the pause button uh, on, on the band. What was that kind of period like leading into that moment? Yeah, well, I think with that second album, we made a lot of weird choices, when I say bad choices. Um, and musically, it wasn't as simple. It wasn't as classic. It wasn't as clear what tropes we were using and what modes we were using, what kind of music we were referencing. Nothing was as clear. The whole thing was a bit jumbled. And that perfectly reflected the life that we'd had since the success of Reflector. So life got jumbled, life got complicated and a little bit overwhelming and a little bit dark. So that's what the second record sounds right. like. So wasn't really selling it. Like everyone was like, oh, we want Reflector Part 2 or, or, or a cool evolution at least. And didn't, didn't like there's some good tracks on it, but as a whole, it didn't really serve that purpose to move us into a great new zone. Um, and then it was actually album number three that we were like, we did get out a third album too. And we went overseas for that one to really try and sort of, okay, okay, let's get back on track. Let's try and nail this a bit better than we did last time. And I think stylistically we maybe did, but the content still wasn't as strong as Reflector, in my humble opinion, because I just think with you've got forever to write your first album mm. and you've got two months to write your second one and you know a year to write your, your third maybe. So I think after feeling like perhaps we weren't nailing it as well, that's when we decided to press pause because no one likes the feeling of devolution, you know. Was it a... A straightforward conversation or was it was there a bit of conflict around the the decision I think it was no I think it was a bit protracted and a bit messy and a bit gradual it wasn't quick and simple it's hard to remember exactly how it all happened because we wanted to sort of support the work we'd done and we also just didn't know what the hell we were going to do without killing Heidi because we'd never really known anything different so there was definitely some deep thinking about it and like what am I losing what am I gaining if I stop I don't know what I'm doing with my life but if I stop I can do anything with my life like it was tricky and I think it took a few fair few convos um and at the end of the day it was probably probably me and Jesse talking to our mum who we kind of often go to as a bit of an oracle of wisdom and she's just a you know fantastic lady and a massive supporter and wants what's best for us because she's our mum. And I feel like it might have been after one of those long heart-to-hearts that we were like, yeah, let's just give it a break. Let's just say we want to take an extended break. And when we said that, my voice in my head was like, yeah, extended break actually means break up. <laughs> yeah. mm. Did you imagine, I suppose, in that moment that, you know, 10 years later you would be, or 11 years later you would be, you know, touring again, celebrating the 20th anniversary? Was that something that entered your mind or was it more just like, just putting a pin in it. Yeah, it didn't enter my mind. I was just like, stop. Just stop, see what else is out there. That was it. I think I just wanted to, I think that the term I used back then was get off the ride. I think we had become a sort of, at one stage we were a juggernaut, but, but at that stage we were just like, we don't know how to stop. We don't know how to stop. It felt more like a sort of a, a merry-go-round or something. And I was like, I think it slowed down to the point where I can safely jump off. And I suppose after that, you know, you you and Jesse had another band called The Verses and you, you know, you've pursued a multitude of other things. You know, you mentioned before Rockwiz uh, and working in radio as well. How have you kind of found that diversifying experience? Fantastic. I really wanted that. I really needed that. I was like, you know, I love being a singer. I am a singer, you know cut and dried I'm a singer I think that's what I am ultimately but I'm also a person who loves new experiences loves being challenged and again it comes back to that sense of identity I kind of think I need an identity that's multifaceted um so you know getting into radio learning how to do tv trying my hand at hosting um working with other bands now doing mentoring as well in a more of an educator role I kind of need all of that to I don't know, feel sort of thoroughly fleshed out. And, and I really feel like it's strengthened my singing. 
it's funny, funnily enough, you know, diversifying and stepping away from being just a front person in a rock and roll band, doing all this other work has brought so much more back to that role and helped me finally, I think, understand what I am doing in that role and what my strengths are and how to sort of make the most of it when I, when I do it. In all of that, how does your uh, notion or idea of success kind of evolve? It definitely evolves. When you're in the mode of successful rock band, your ideas of success are shipping a certain number of CDs and selling it, making a certain number of platinums. Like, you know, you only think of success as going multi-platinum. And that's like a pretty tough place to start. Your idea of success is very (laughs) rare. And you're like, "Uh uh-oh, we've set the bar pretty high. And there's, you know, of course, there's so many different other ways to succeed. Like, are you happy with the art? Does it really make you feel proud when you listen to it? Like, that's success. So your goalposts keep changing and that's okay. And are you doing work that you love? Do you have a healthy relationship? Like, are you mentally fit and well? All those things are far more, like for me these days, indicators of true success to just shipping a certain number of CDs. I still love to get my stuff played on the radio. I still love that, you know, over a thousand people come to the show. Like I definitely appreciate traditional elements of success, like full rooms, bums on seats, excitement, but it's really those more subtle ideas of success, like feeling well and happy and feeling like what you're doing is in line with your morals. That's all the kinds of success that I now enjoy as an adult. How have you managed to find that kind of centering, uh, centeredness? I trial and error. I think just trial and error. Like you try things and you go, oh, that didn't feel good. That felt yucky. Don't think I'll go on that TV show again. Or like, I don't want to, you know, like you just try things and, Maybe you write articles or maybe you learn how to pour coffees or you kind of go, yeah, maybe I can do singing teaching. No, I don't like singing teaching. I'm a terrible singing teacher. Trial and error, just being up for stuff. And then you find your niche and you find, yeah, that you may have several kind of callings and things that make you feel good. And Some of the solo music that you released, um, Venom and New Magic, is quite... Uh, shift away from what killing Heidi was and you know that I guess in and of itself is kind of a marker of your evolution as an artist what was the I suppose experience of creating that work like so uh important for me yeah really uh pivotal and I think as much as I diversified in my media career and, you know, finding all those other strings to my bow really helped me as a person and helped me kind of go, oh, I'm more than just the chick from Killing Heidi, which may or may not have been, you know, one of those voices in my head's going, you'll always just be the girl from Killing Heidi. And that's okay. Like these days, I'm fine with that. But for a while, I think I was kind of running from that going, no, there's, you know, there's got to be more to it than that. I don't like being pigeonholed, hence all my other adventures. But Nothing really compares to the making of Venom and New Magic to really show me, to really show me that I'd I'd done it. Like I've pushed myself into new creative zones and succeeded by my own standards because I'm really proud of those two records. They sound more like the music I listen to. They pushed me into uncomfortable and rewarding zones lyrically and production-wise. And I've kind of pretty much would say I co-produced the records as well. So I learned a lot more about production and about getting those sounds, be they nice or ugly that I wanted on the record and, and being sort of trusted to do that. So it was really pivotal for me and I'm super proud of it. I suppose by this point in time, you know, most of what you're doing in the creative process is very intentional and very conscious to kind of throw back to that conversation we had earlier about running off instinct. What, were, what was the importance for you of, you know, really being honest and I guess raw to an extent with those albums? Because they are, you know, lyrically, they're quite raw. Mm. Well, I just had that bubbling up in me. I was like, I've just got to get this out. And that's why Venom's called Venom because it was like literally a poison in me. I had to get out. And then I don't know why I had to inflict it on others. That much I don't really know. You know, I could have just written the songs and, you know, again, I think some people probably suggested, yeah, maybe don't release that. It's pretty personal. It's pretty dark. And I was like, yeah, but surely others will feel what I'm feeling. And like, 
I'm all about connection and sharing the story and the reaction that I've had from my my fan base that's into my solo work was was pretty incredible like it definitely struck a chord with people who had gone through similar things and you know don't we all sort of love a gnarly breakup record I know some of my favorite records are pull no punches honest breakup records and I was like I think it's my turn to do one because I had it in me that's what what's what had just happened I had just gone through a really life-changing traumatic breakup so I was like well just gonna give it a go and out it came and I wanted to capture it and I wanted to share it and you know I was like I've always been a little bit hesitant about going for the jugular so I needed a new challenge I was like can I do it can I pull it off and I think I did I would agree with that thanks (laughs) and there's no hard feelings now thank god (laughs) (laughs) Just to put a pin in that as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you get a reaction from the person who the album was about? A supportive reaction, believe it or not. Pretty supportive. From anyone that knew me or well, knows me or cares about me, I think they knew it was a, an important record for me and that it would be good for me to make it. So, yeah, a positive reaction, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose, you know, you're getting a certain amount of catharsis from that process as well. Mm, exactly. I think, well, I'm a bit weird. Like once I've sort of been in love with someone, I'm sort of always connected to them, whether it's love or hate or whatever, or, you know, but for me, it's mostly there's still a kind of love that exists post breakup and you want what's best for that person. And for me, it was definitely making the record was a part of my healing. So I'm lucky that person wanted it for me. Mm. What what do, What is your take, I suppose, you know, creative industries from my observation and experience make it can make it quite challenging to have intimate relationships what's your kind of experience of that been yeah I don't know people often say that but I don't really know anything different I think it's trickier people are always shocked that I say like no I don't go on a many dates no one asks me out like it, it just doesn't happen and I do hear that from a few other people who are in the public eye or who are well known and they find it harder to get the ball rolling and to be in the normal sort of flirtation pickup situation. There's just like a layer in between you and other people and maybe that's the layer of perception because you're, you're known and they may not be known. And then you have the scenarios where the both of you are known and you both have a sort of your own um, gravity or perception or whatever. I'm still working it out. It's a very tricky curly one Mm. and and my older wiser friends are like you need to go out with someone who's not in the industry at all they're like go out with a plumber and I'm like okay well I never meet any plumbers either so I don't know (laughs) what I'm gonna do (laughs) pull out a yellow pages yeah go to pee oh my god I guess I guess you can't really just you know go on tinder can't go on tinder Mm -hmm. can't do any of that stuff yeah so I guess to kind of hook back to killing Heidi and this kind of moment that you find yourself in now when did you have the discussion what was the discussion that you had was it with Jesse was it with other people as well about you know let's do it let's do another show it is mainly between Jess and I because we kind of hold I think Killing Heidi at the end of the day is our creation that we have um, invited other people into at times, and at times ejected them from. Um, <laughs> but um, and also you have our a big beautiful red button for yeah, it. Beep, you've had your go. Beep. And our beautiful drummer Pedro Adam, because he's the other original member. Well, almost original member. We did have a different high school lineup before Adam, but he has been really fantastic and supportive as well. He's been like, "Well, you only do what you want to do, kiddo. I only want to do it if you want to do it. If you feel funny about something, we don't do it." you can just kind of run the show for a change. And so he's been really um, insistent on me being the driver, like being in the driving seat of this reunion, which I would kind of say I am. Jesse's definitely the organized one. Jesse's definitely the one that makes things happen. But in this reincarnation of Killing Huddy, they don't happen unless I want them to happen, which wasn't always the way. Even though I was the front girl up the front doing being the face of the band, I certainly was not the driver. So part of this reunion is a nice chance for me to step into that role and see what it's like to be not only the face of Killing Heidi, 
but the director of as well with Jesse and with Adam. And that's kind of really important to us. And it's part of our, I know it sounds funny, but I mentioned it before in different context, but part of our healing and part of our why we're doing this is to close a loop and to create a new story around how this band works and what this band means that's more in line with our original vision. And that's, I think, why the reunion is going so well. I think that's why it's got this almost the energy of a new band around it. It's getting new fans. Our gigs are going so well. Our online buzz is like, it's crazy. I read all the comments and I just, I cannot believe that this is for Killing Heidi. Mm. This band that's been, you know, 10 years broken up and was kind of divisive at the first time round. You know, some people loved it, some people hated it. Yeah, I think all those factors about what we're doing it for and the way that we make our decisions now have really aided the reunion. And what was, what was it like to step out on stage again? So exciting, so fun, wonderful. I didn't feel any nerves. I haven't felt any nerves so far. I have, I feel like it's almost like cheating. I honestly feel like this is cheating <laughs> because I'm 10 times the performer I was back then. I'm 10 times the singer. I can control my voice so much more. I know how to entertain a crowd. I'm confident, yet I've got this back catalogue of hits that I was never playing. So even though I had all this, you know, newfound skill as a performer, whoosh, scrap that, I went on to the harrowing material of my solo work and it's like, yeah, pretty hard to kind of get the crowd around on that stuff sometimes. <laughs> so now I feel like I've been practicing with weights on and then someone's just taken the weights off and I'm like, boom, try this hit single, boom, try this hit single. But with finesse that I never had back then when they were new songs. That was just like wild, crazy, random electricity. I hope it works. And now I'm like, I kind of know it's going to work because I know what I'm doing. But here's this material that's already been approved and has so much emotional charge for people. So, yeah, just feels amazing. What an amazing experience. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I can't believe I was so resistant for so long. I was like, I'll never do it. I don't want to do it. You can't make me do it. And now here I am like getting all religious about it. So shows what I know. Well, I, you know, but there's also something to be said for doing things in the right moment. Exactly. I feel like it wouldn't be like this at any other time. I really do feel like, not to toot my own horn, but it's a good thing we waited. It's a good thing I resisted and was like, no, 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 no. Because I also feel like the the wheel of public interest has just naturally, you know how it moves in like 20 year cycles, like 20 year something becomes retro. Everyone's mm. wearing 90 shit. Everyone's going to Dangerfield. Everyone's like, you know, like these <laughs> 17, 19 year olds I work with are like discovering grunge. And I'm like, oh my God, this is the perfect time for killing Heidi to come back and have a little resurgence. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's awesome. Thank you so much for, uh, for chatting with me, Ella. Um, I, I finish every conversation with, uh, with one question, which is what makes you silly? The right song and too much copy. What's the right song? And as a follow-up to that, what is your coffee of choice? Oh, the right song will be something really obnoxious like Daphne and Celeste or Spice Girls or something awesome, S Club 7, something really horrible, pop, obnoxious. And my coffee of choice is a soy flat white and lots of them. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ella. <laughs> Thanks. You know that we can make things happen that is what you say when no always comes in. on in there